Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Ashkan Kazarian. On today's show, we're going to talk about vaping and what's going on around the United States with regulation and laws that are trying to regulate vaping. Joining us is an expert um, on that and many other issues, Paul Blair. He's Director of Strategic Initiatives at Americans for Tax Reform. Paul, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Paul, uh, before we dive into the fascinating world of vaping, what does Americans for Tax Reform, ATR, do for people outside of D.C. or in D.C. who are not in this space? Sure. So uh, what we're probably most famous for is something called the Taxpayer Protection Pledge, which is a written commitment that we ask everyone running for office, federal and state, to sign, uh, committing to not raise taxes, put their no-tax rhetoric in writing. Um, That's kind of the base level for our engagement on a wide range of regulatory and public policy issues. Kind of our general theory on government is that if you prevent government from growing by stealing people's money, whether they're businesses, families, individuals, uh, you force reform. And so whether that's in the healthcare space, the transportation space, the tech and telecom space, uh, the best way to ensure that we force politicians to reform government to make it work better uh, is to prevent them from stealing more people's money. Because if the government can provide a service or arguably do something that the private sector uh, uh, creates as a product, uh, if you can prevent them from doing that, we allow for more innovation, we allow for more entrepreneurship. And so asking politicians to not raise taxes, requiring them to do so um, is, is our principal project. Uh, and that's that's a project that we've uh, been asking candidates for office to sign for over 20 years. Uh, but certainly to the extent that we work on non-tax issues, there, there are a lot of uh, subject areas uh, that we engage in. All right. So taxation is a corner issue. And then a lot of deregulation. I'm hearing the notes of deregulation and more efficient um, agency operation um, amongst the things that I've seen you guys do. Uh, How did you guys get involved in vaping regulation and laws and all of that fun stuff? Makes me feel old thinking back to how long I've been working on the vapor issue. For the listeners, Paul is a gray haired. No. <laughs> no, I mean, so been in DC for about 11 years, but on, on this issue, um, we first started seeing uh, state legislators and kind of departments of revenue look at their tobacco tax code uh, about six, seven years ago when e cigarettes uh, kind of started to become a thing. When a number of smokers were using these products, they were becoming a little more popular uh, by consumers across the United States. And what we saw, after 2013 was that a number of states were trying to redefine what a tobacco product was, moving away from the definition that a product actually came from a tobacco plant and uh, into the realm of, well, it looks like smoking uh, and the products kind of look like cigarettes. Feels like smoking. Yeah, and so we might as well tax them the same. And so I would say between 2014 and 2016, e-cigarettes at the state level were the number one target of any product sold in the United States, liquor, uh, marijuana, where it's legal, any any product overall, including gas, uh, for tax hikes. And so we kind of naturally fell into this fight, uh, fighting against tax hikes on these products, which are demonstrably less harmful than actual combustible cigarettes, uh, around 2015. Now, our work in this space significantly uh, increased in the years that followed. And I know that we'll get into some of that at the federal level in a minute, but it really started as kind of this this fight um, where, where we were seeing reclassification of products in an inappropriate way. 
uh, aligned with a growing number of consumers who, unlike consumers of other products, whether it's cigarettes or alcohol, craft beer or whatever it is, these people were showing up to fight against tax hikes. I remember back in Washington state, maybe four years ago. When Sunday before legislative session ended, Governor Jay Inslee, who is currently running for president, had proposed a 95% tax on these products. And Sunday before session I'm ended- I'm guessing this is a Democratic nominee. I haven't even heard he that is, name. He is. I think one of the 20 or so folks running. Um, I don't know that he registers above 1% in national polls, but uh, he proposed a 95% tax on these products. And I was in the state, at the state capitol, um, that, that Sunday before session ended, and- were three, four hundred people that had showed up to protest in the rain at the state capitol. And of all of the tax issues that we work on, you can't manufacture that sort of organic opposition to a tax increase, even if we tried. And so uh, this became, uh, as, as we saw at the time, much more than just a policy disagreement over whether these products should be subjected to taxes. But a lot of these consumers, uh, as we saw uh, between 2013 and 2016, felt so deeply passionate about their decision to move away from cigarettes onto e-cigarettes that they were willing to show up and protest, regardless of you know the party or candidate or uh, you know, composition legislature, they were just really angry that someone wanted to raise the cost of the products they were using to make improved health decisions for themselves. And that's kind of cool for a tax policy organization uh, that often finds it difficult to get people really fired up about uh, tax issues. And I think what you just said also transpired party lines, because not only Republicans are not big fans of taxes, but also everyday consumers who might identify more as liberal, who use this product to have a healthier lifestyle or for whatever reason they do. And uh, we're going to link in the show notes to the previous episodes we've done with PhDs, experts on harm reduction, um, with a lot of evidence and research that proves how much safer vaping products are. Because we're here not to talk about that. We're yeah. going to use that just as a baseline because there's, guys, there's so much out there. There's a lot of proof on that. Uh, we're just going to step aside from that and talk about what's going on. So um, that was a great state example. And um, let's talk a little bit about what's going on um, where we're at on federal level. Is there some general federal regulation that covers this? Sure. I would say we're uh, in treacherous waters surrounded by sharks right now with regards to the government's treatment of this industry. So under the Obama administration, similar to what we saw at the state level by redefining tobacco products to include these lower risk alternatives, uh, we saw a redefinition of these products at the federal level as well in 2016. Now fast forward into the Trump administration, prior uh, commissioner who left, I think maybe a month or so ago, Scott Gottlieb, at the beginning of his term, we were hopeful. Um, they had delayed the deadlines for companies that manufacture these products to get retroactive pre-approval to keep the products on the market. So let's break that down for our listeners who are not as well versed in regulatory talk. Why why did they have to do something retroactively? So the product was already on the market, yeah. but FDA wanted approval and they had to prove it like back few yeah. years. So when the Tobacco Control Act passed about a decade ago, they grandfathered in every tobacco product on the market. 
At the time, though, they didn't contemplate the existence of e-cigarettes or vapor products because in the U.S. in 2009, 2010, they didn't really exist. There may have been one product at the time, I'm not really sure, uh, but they didn't exist. And so all of the cigarettes that are on the market or were on the market were grandfathered in and exempt from uh, needing to get permission from the government in order to sell them moving forward. What the Obama administration said is that we're now going to change the definition of a tobacco product to include e-cigarettes. But that same process for getting approval that was created in 2009 and 2010 was going to be applied to products that were on the market in 2016. So between 2010 and 2016, tens of thousands of these vapor products began to be sold in convenience stores, in vape shops. And we're not only talking large manufacturers, but thousands of small businesses were creating their own products. Innovation was just spreading yeah, across the country. Innovation out of control, but in a good way. So between 2010 and 2016, thousands of these products hit the market. And what the FDA said is that that process created in 2009 and 2010 to get approval to come onto the market was retroactively applied to all of the products that were already on the market. And the reason this was an issue is because that process, probably intentionally so, was designed to make it very difficult to bring a product to market. Because at the time, Congress said, we don't want new tobacco products in the market. There were health reasons for it. And so what we faced in the first two years of the Trump administration was this deadline, kind of an arbitrary deadline, for every manufacturer, small, medium, and large, to get permission from the government to keep these products on the market moving forward. And if they didn't get permission from the government, they'd be removed. The FDA said they would seize them. They would no longer be legal. All right. So and then we flash forward to near past yeah. where uh, Gottlieb became FDA commissioner and you had hopes. Absolutely. What happened to your hopes? Well, and so, dreams? yeah, so in the summer, they were squashed like many others. So in the summer of 2017, um, Commissioner Gottlieb made some, I, I think, extraordinary statements that acknowledged something called the continuum of risk, that when consumers make choices, and I know you've had uh, Kerry Wade on the show in the past to talk about harm reduction, what the continuum of risk is, but essentially what he said is that um, because we acknowledge there is a continuum of risk for these products, we're going to postpone the deadline for all of these manufacturers needing to go through this extremely onerous process, probably designed to end in failure. And we're going to come up with perhaps a more clear and transparent process for getting permission from the government moving forward. So over the 18 months that followed, up until about a month or two months ago, uh, there was what I would call kind of a manufactured crisis around the Juul epidemic. So for folks who aren't in... Um, I was going to say, I was going to ask you that. I've um, Listeners, I'm about to throw him a curveball and he just catches it before I do. So obviously there has been a big campaign about teenage vaping. Mm -hmm. um, I have some personal opinions on that that probably will come through later, but um, I'm not an expert on this. Tell me... Why do you think it's manufactured or and what do you think it started with and who would benefit from this? Sure. So I th and this goes to where Gottlieb's perception and treatment of this industry dramatically began to change. So when the National Youth Tobacco uh, Use data began to come in last year, it did show an increase in youth use and youth experimentation of products, including Juul. Over the 12 months of, I would say, probably end of 2017 through mid and late 2018, 
if you read anything about e-cigarettes, national news stories, state news stories, pretty much all of them began to mention this new company that didn't exist five, six years ago, Juul. And what they all said, and they all repeated kind of the same talking points about Juul pods, the amount of nicotine that they had in them and the flavors that were offered. And so I kind of equate what happened over those 12 months to the primary season of the 2016 election. And the reason I think it's important to kind of compare these two is what we saw in 2015 to 2016 is unlimited free airtime for candidate for president Donald Trump. He didn't have to spend any money running any campaign ads. And although all of the coverage, 95% of the coverage was negative, everyone who he was, there wasn't any question about what he believed in. Some of it was certainly silly, but he had this unlimited free airtime. And so what public health organizations uh, were so-called public health organizations, the campaign for tobacco free kids aided by the FDA over 12 months, 2017 to 2018 was continued to talk about and continue to provide free airtime to this company called Juul. And so what we saw is that instead of 10, 12, 13 stories about youth experimentation with Juul or the success story of Juul is every story talking about this epidemic in high schools and middle schools, uh, national news, As NBC. As kids didn't used to smoke before. <laughs> uh, cigarettes or marijuana, absolutely. When I'm saying kids, I mean teenagers, yeah. by the way. Yeah, absolutely. And and so they, they created this fear among suburban moms that their kids were engaged in these really, really risky behaviors, um, arguably, as, as some of them said, more risky than smoking. Of course, that's not true. But the, the, we saw all these stories and began to scare all of these suburban parents. The word parents. epidemic definitely has some negative and strong yeah. power behind I it. I mean, you know, I don't I don't operate exclusively in the public health space, but my understanding of the word epidemic is there's a connotation of actual harm to consumers, uh, that there's actual health consequences for the use of these products. Uh, Compare it to cigarette use, where 450,000 plus people die a year uh, because of their use of cigarettes. That sort of data doesn't exist for e-cigarettes, despite the fact they've been on the market for a decade. And so what we saw is that as unlimited free airtime, national news, state news, local news, started talking about Juul and this e-cigarette epidemic, youth youth use increased. Because how do you convince a kid uh, to not experiment with these he products? He just heard it sounds cool. Exactly. He exactly. just heard it's a bad thing, so exactly. he wants to do it. Or she, cotton candy. I mean, come yeah. On. And so that kind of um, correlated with FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb's uh, change in behavior and the treatment of this industry, where not only did some data suggest, um, national youth use data suggest, that there was a rise in youth use and experimentation of these products, but every national news story talked about how dangerous that rise and that epidemic was. And so uh, instead of this open embrace that we saw in 2017 when Gottlieb uh, began his term as commissioner, Towards the end of his term, uh, we heard more aggressive rhetoric and proposals than were ever even contemplated under the Obama administration, including bans on category-wide products, um, including threatened bans on flavors. And not all those things have necessarily come to fruition in terms of official rules, but those are the sort of threats that we saw at the end of Commissioner Scott Gottlieb's uh, tenure and term. And so we're in a much different space today than we were in 2017, and arguably a more dangerous space than we were when, under the Obama administration, the definition of a tobacco product was kind of arbitrarily changed. On a side note, what is um, what is Gottlieb up to these days? 
Well, I, I think uh, he's back at the American Enterprise Institute, which does great work, including on this issue. Um, Dr. Sally Sattel does, does great work and coverage on harm reduction broadly. Um, but I think he's focused more on on drug, um, drug pricing, drug issues there. I don't know that he's fully announced any of his other private sector plans, but he certainly is uh, still active on Twitter. I don't know if he regrets that he was uh, that, that he left the FDA, but he continues to talk about how important it is that we contemplate banning these products. And so he's still active on Twitter saying some silly stuff. Um, but uh, beyond that, I don't know what his other private sector endeavors are. That sounds as a very intense change of heart that has happened while Commissioner was in office. I wonder if there is something else behind the story. If any of our listeners have any intel, please let us know. I would we'll like to know, too. We'll keep it off the record. Um, all right. So that's what happened on the agency level. How about Congress? Is Congress up to anything on this? Uh, that is also an understatement. Um, so we obviously have a new uh, majority uh, that has control of the House of Representatives. Uh, House Energy and Commerce Chairman Frank Pallone, he's got a bill called Reversing the Youth Tobacco Epidemic Act of 2019. And it essentially puts in law all of the things that Commissioner Scott Gottlieb uh, threatened to do or has contemplated plus some. So bans online sales of these products, it bans flavored products, raises the age to use these products. Um, and although I doubt there's much of an appetite in the Senate, which of course is controlled by Republicans to contemplate all of those ideas and proposals, there's certainly an appetite for some of them, as we've seen in recent weeks around uh, the 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 threat of raising the age to use these products. And so I don't think there's much momentum on a full-scale legislative ban of most of these products, but there are threats and and, and Senate Majority Leader, for example, uh, has a has a bill and uh, that he just filed to raise the age That's to use these Mitch products. McConnell. Correct. Yeah. So, you know, raising the age to use these products from 18 to 21 has long been a priority of. So these... people can get married, but they can't vape. They can vote, but they can't vape. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm from Europe. I don't understand all of yeah. it. Honestly, when I moved here, I was already over 21. But the fact that your 18-year-olds can drink but can vote just still puzzles my brain. Yeah. I mean, look, the at the national level, um, if we were to raise the age to use these products to 21, it would actually be the only federal law that imposes a 21 age youth uh, use uh, ban because alcohol, for example, is, state. Um, is a state law. Of course, there's federal appropriation tied to or tied to your highway trust fund dollars, um, but it's not an actual, there's not a national ban on the use uh, or, or use of alcohol uh, between the age of 18 and 21 at the federal level. It's, it's all state law. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting evolution of thought, particularly because uh, Senate Majority Leader McConnell has expressed opposition and hesitance to do this in the past. Uh, but that kind of overwhelming uh, orchestrated crusade against this industry has clearly been very effective, and that crosses partisan lines. As someone who has not really been a political animal and does more of academic uh, research and outreach here in Washington, D.C., can you explain to me how Republicans are now anti-industry? Is there? Can you speak for all of them? Yeah, What's going I mean, on? yeah, I mean, look, um, the I, I think the polling on this is not good. Um, the suburban moms, yeah, messed up. the suburban mom issue, which Republicans have a problem with. If you look at the 2018 midterms and even some of the results of the 2016 elections. 
Um, you know, suburban moms, whether they're in Virginia or Pennsylvania or wherever, um, are a powerful political constituency and a concern for their kids' health and well-being is a strong political motivator. Um, so there's clearly some data that suggests that being tough on this industry for whatever reason is advantageous. What I think it misses is the political power of the people who use these products, the adults, the millions of adults who have effectively and successfully quit smoking with a product that they attribute to saving their lives. These are people who feel deeply passionate about the products as well. And so there's there's two sides to that coin on the politics of being wrong on this issue. We did polling in 2016 that showed four out of five of these consumers age 21 and above were single issue voters on where a politician stood on taxes or regulations of vapor products for those that use them. And so, yes, there might be polling to suggest that suburban moms are concerned that little Johnny may have been vaping at school. Uh, but their neighbor who may have quit with this product and that person's husband or wife and kids all know and probably feel pretty strongly about the benefit of preserving access to these products and ensuring that they're affordable moving forward. So polling does go both ways on this, but I think at present, uh, the prevailing narrative around being tough on this industry is probably winning. And let's not even get into just making better parenting decisions and being a yeah. better parent. All right, so we're recording this on May 22nd. Um, if you just looked into a crystal ball and wanted to predict the future, what do you think is going to happen in this space? You can give me an optimistic and a pessimistic scenario, but I want a realistic one. Yeah, so optimistic, I will say that despite Scott Gottlieb's aggressive run towards contemplating a sales ban for most of these products and limiting the access that adult consumers have to these products, I don't think there is forward momentum on formal rules that do that, whether it's at HHS, whether it's at OMB, or whether it's within the White House. So optimistically, I would say most of what Gottlieb threatened doesn't happen. What happens then? Uh, limiting access to these products in traditional outlets where they are sold is probably likely. Um, and this occurs without formal rules, but with what's called industry guidance, which should concern anyone who works on any issue um, because it's kind of this dark area of uncertainty for industries. Um, unfortunately, there are some big businesses that support limiting access to these products. And what I mean is that um, on his way out, Gottlieb pushed potential guidance that said in traditional convenience stores, you're not going to be able to access flavored e-cigarettes. And that might sound like a good idea for those who don't use these products or may not have a lot of familiarity with this industry, except it discounts the fact that that's where smokers buy cigarettes. So you go into a 7-Eleven, a Walgreens, a Wawa, that's where you buy your Newports or your Marlboros or whatever your preferred cigarette is. And so to suggest that that same adult consumer who has immediate access to those products isn't going to have an alternative that is 95 to 99% less harmful next to it is absurd. But that is something where the FDA is currently looking at guidance to the industry that would prevent adult consumers from having access to e-cigarettes, flavored e-cigarettes, in those same retail outlets and convenience stores across the United States. That is so counterintuitive. You don't want to put a safer version next to, you know, like you don't want to put the decaf next to the coffee, although I can't drink decaf, so that's a bad example. 
but you know, Diet Coke next to Coke or something. Um, well, I hope it gets better and I hope your pessimistic and optimistic scenarios, you know, kind of merge into one realistic one. Um, any final thoughts that you want our listeners to take away from this episode? I think what, what's interesting for those who may not you know, focus on this industry or who have no clue what an e-cigarette is, is that this is just such a good example of innovation solving a public policy problem and a healthcare problem. We spend billions of dollars uh, on expenditures for Medicaid and Medicare as a direct result of people's decision to use cigarettes. And so this is a taxpayer issue as well. It's not only an innovation and technology issue, it's a taxpayer issue. Getting smokers to switch away from cigarettes by providing them a choice in a better alternative um, is a taxpayer issue where we can save tens of billions of dollars on top of the fact we can save hundreds of thousands of lives. And so I think within the context of this being an extremely important issue, because we can save a lot of money, and save a lot of lives is is what I want the takeaway to be. That is a good idea. Let's save some lives. We're going to link to your work in our show notes and people can find you on Twitter at Paul Blair, I believe. At Go Paul Blair. Go Paul Blair. Encouraging, yeah. Um, and Paul, thank you so much. We'll have you back to talk about life, death, taxes. Electric and, scooters. And electric scooters is another pet project of, uh, of Paul. He scooted to our I studio did. here on Capitol Hill. Uh, and we hope he safely scoots back. Um, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. You can find Tech Freedom on every platform that you listen to your podcast on. Please leave us a review because we haven't had reviews in two years. And honestly, I don't know if I'm doing anything wrong or right. Have a good one. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.